The sermon series for Advent this year is titled Advent Answers for Christmas Questions. You know, there's many questions about Christmas. Why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Why is it celebrated in December? Why red and green? Where do Christmas cookies come from? Why are presents involved? Why do we decorate a tree? What am I going to give? What am I going to get? Why are ties and socks such popular Christmas gifts? Over the next three Wednesdays of Advent, we'll answer some very important questions about Christmas. But I have no answers for ties and socks. Tonight, we're going to focus on the question, why was it necessary for Jesus to be born? We're going to celebrate his birth, and we know whose birthday we're celebrating, but why was it necessary for him to be born? You know, it's, it's amazing when you look at that video. Uh, Mike Edge picked out the video. He had no clue what my sermon was about. And I don't think he knew what the hymn was going to be before the sermon. Yet the hymn and the sermon fit together with that video. Because the question I was going to ask was, how do you interpret the news? The video showed you a lot of headlines from the past several months. But I have some from the past several hours. Mass shooting in San Bernardino. Six die in car crash. Police officer trial begins. Attorney General files suit against Commerce Commission chair. Puerto Rico close to default. Three gunmen held in latest shooting. Local jobs closing costs many jobs. Commentators and counselors try and help us understand some aspects of the news, of the, of the trouble in the news. But they can't do it all. There, there's a key that explains so much more what lies behind the headlines. And the key is the answer to that question that I asked before. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be born? The simple answer that we're going to unpack tonight is the problem is sin. To better understand the problem of sin, let's review the context of the biblical story for just a moment. The Bible starts off with a very powerful story about creation. The Bible tells us that God, the creator of the entire universe, brought that universe into being for the sole purpose of having a place, a location, a neighborhood, if you will, to put the crown jewel of his creation, which were human beings. Human beings are the special focus of creation, the crown jewels of God's creation. We are created for relationship with God. But sin destroyed that relationship. When God created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, he placed them in a special garden, and he told them that all the rest of the created order existed for their uh, support and sustenance. And the Bible says God looked around and everything that he had created, everything was very good. 
But as we look around the world today, we read the headlines, we see the videos, that original perfection no longer exists. Which brings us to the second part of the biblical story, the fall into sin, described in Genesis chapter 3. You see, for the relationship that God desired, God originally created Adam and Eve with complete free will. That is, he didn't create a Barbie and Ken doll that were just perfect but couldn't make any changes. He didn't create robots that followed a program, but he created people with a free will. And he said to those people, I am the creator, you are the creature, and you were made to be in relationship with me, and this relationship will be perfect. But in order for that relationship to be real, you have to have the free will to opt out of it. And so in the middle of this garden, I'm planting a tree called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if everything else I have created is totally yours, but so that you can show your obedience to me, that you recognize that you are my creatures and that I am the creator, you may not eat of the fruit of that one tree. You can choose to be in relationship with me, or you can choose to make yourselves God, a God for yourself. And we all know the story. Eventually, Adam and Eve yielded to the temptation of Satan. They chose to want to be like God, so they ate of the tree and they broke the relationship. And as a result, sin and death entered into the world, and that, that perfect relationship that God had created was shattered so badly that even all of the created order was affected. Now, I want you to note this well. Sin equals the condition we are in before God. When the Bible talks about sin, it's talking about a fallen relationship. When it talks about sins, with a plural S, he's talking about the wrongs that we do because of the sinful condition that we are in. So, <clears throat> excuse me, sin with a capital S refers to the condition we are in, and sins, with a plural S, refers to the wrongs we do. The condition we are in results in the wrongs that we do. <coughs> Stated another way, we commit sins because we're in a sinful condition. It shows in, in the way that we do things that are wrong, called sins of commission, and the good things that we're supposed to do that we don't do, sins of omission. But here's the real punchline when you start talking about sin. Even if you don't act on a sinful urge, if in the back of your mind suddenly this sinful urge pops up and you bear down and you resist it and you fight off the temptation and you don't do it, that stifled impulse, that sinful impulse, is still damning, is still wrong. You can trust Jesus for forgiveness and your sins will be covered, but the sinful condition you are in will not be changed this side of eternity. Psalm 143 says, no one living is righteous before God. We are forgiven, but we are not perfected. So even as redeemed sons and daughters of God, we still are subject to the temptation of sin because we were born into and we live in a fallen world. 
To adequately define sin, you need to go way beyond thinking it's just merely a mistake. If you take the Bible seriously to help you understand life, you learn that sin is the total corruption of our being from conception. A whole bunch of Bible passages point this out. For instance, Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Paul in Romans chapter 7 says, Nothing good dwells in me. Call that original sin. It's the corrupted condition of our nature. It's the sin inherited from one generation to the next. Apple trees can't produce bananas. Sinners can't produce sinless people. Sin has totally corrupted human nature. So by our nature as fallen human beings, we are born into and we live in a sinful condition. The sinful condition leads us to commit sinful acts. Well, where does that come from? The Bible has some very explicit things to say. In the epistle of James, chapter 4, we read, James answers a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire what you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And remember, if you don't even do those things, but just think about them, Bible says you've already committed the sin in your heart. So I know I've never committed murder, but I do have to confess that there are times I wanted to wring people's neck, and I'm probably not the only one. So even when I try not to do the bad things, the thoughts come from this corrupted, fallen nature. Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, For from the inside, from your heart, come the evil ideas which lead you to do immoral things, to rob, kill, commit adultery, be greedy, do all sorts of evil things, deceit, indecency, jealousy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from the inside and they make you unclean. So you can see why the Creator God mourned the loss of the true relationship he desired with the beings he had created. Because God is a just God, he was compelled to punish humanity for sin. But the Bible tells us that God is also a gracious God. And that brings us back to the question for this evening. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be born? It wasn't something that was a spur-of-the-moment thing with God. God planned from the moment that human beings fell into sin, he planned to rescue them via his son. He sent his son Jesus to be born to pay the price for our sins, to pay the price for the sins of mankind in order to satisfy God's justice, in order to redeem, that is, to buy back humankind. The third part of the biblical story is the story of the incarnation, the fact that God would come in the flesh to, to save his people. Already back in Genesis chapter 3, in the middle of the, of the curse to Satan, 
when he, was, when he was cursing the serpent, God made this promise. He was talking to Satan and he said, I will make you and the woman hostile towards each other. I will make your descendants and her descendant hostile towards each other. He, that is the descendant of Eve, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. The descendant of the woman promised already back in the garden by God was Jesus Christ, Son of God. That's what we celebrate as we prepare for Christmas. In Galatians chapter 4 we read, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as his sons and daughters. This passage pictures God's grace. The Creator God sent His fully divine Son to be born fully human, to be tempted in every way like you and I are tempted, to fulfill all the demands of God's law that we cannot fulfill, to achieve the justice that we are incapable of. He was to be our substitute, to take upon Himself the punishment for our sins. He lived that perfect life he completed the task with his death on the cross, and as he cried, it is finished, he accomplished the payment of the sins for the whole world. During the past two and a half months, the Connect Bible study groups have been involved in an in-depth study of God's amazing grace. God's grace runs counter to our human intu intuition. Throughout our lives, we have been taught and we have learned and we have ingrained into ourselves conventional human wisdom. Sounds like this. The early bird gets the worm, right? No pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Demand your rights. Get what you pay for. We know these rules because we live by them. I work for what I earn. I like to win. I want people to get what they deserve. True? But the gospel reveals a different story. It tells me that I did not get what I deserved. Because of my sin, I deserve punishment. Instead, I receive forgiveness. Because of my sin, I deserve to be cast into eternal darkness. But instead, I was welcomed and adopted into God's home. I deserved God's wrath, but I received God's love. You see, grace solves the dilemma for God. There's an underlying tension throughout the scripture about how God feels towards humanity. On the one hand, God loves us with a love that we can't even begin to fathom. But on the other hand, our behavior, our actions repulse him. God yearns to see in people something of the image of God in which they were created. But at best, he sees shattered fragments of that image. But God does not give up. The same God who created the heavens and earth used his power to bridge the chasm that was separating him from his creatures. He reconciled. He forgives. He continues to offer himself in love to you and to me. And he says, come 
my children. Grace baffles us because it goes against every intuition that we have. In the face of injustice, we say some price has to be paid. Somebody has to pay for this. Jesus coming at Christmas reminds us that a price has been paid by God himself. The message of God's grace at Christmas is this. God gave his own son rather than to give up on humanity. So what does it mean for you and for me that Jesus was born? It means that the original relationship that God had intended at creation has been restored. God created human beings to be in relationship with him. The fall into sin broke it. But in Jesus Christ, God has restored the relationship. It means for you and for me that, that God is for us. He's not against us. The Bible promised in Isaiah chapter 7 and the reading from Matthew chapter 1 fulfilled that promise. His name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Once we disobeyed God, we could no longer get to him. So instead, he chose to come to us. And finally, it means that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we've already received the greatest gift there ever is. It's the greatest gift because it's a gift that keeps on giving. His birth is only the beginning. His life, his death, his resurrection, and the hope of his return are all wrapped up in that original Christmas gift. Here is God for us. So as you look forward to and prepare for Christmas this year, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem on that first Christmas, you can know with all your heart that God loves you, that he has adopted you into his family, that you are his son, you are his daughter, and that he's coming again, and he will take you to be with him completely restored for all eternity. And all God's people said, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Emmanuel, God with us, the promise first spoken by the prophet Isaiah, reiterated by the angel to Joseph, and echoed in countless Christmas songs and readings and prayers. We thank you for the fact that you chose to come into our existence that you chose to sacrifice your son to redeem us, and that in him we have been renewed and restored. We pray, Lord, that we would use that gift of life to be messengers of the good news, to tell everyone what we have seen and heard, and to invite them to celebrate with us that indeed Emmanuel has come, God is with us. Amen.